to the final reasonable faith of this term. We'll do the usual thing this afternoon, two talks, 20 minutes each talk, 10 minutes questions afterwards. Um, as an introduction, first of all, there's some cards on the table, some blank A6 cards, two things to do with them. Uh, firstly, we'd like to know ideas of what you would like to talk about next term. So if you've got any questions, uh, jot them down so that we can hopefully scratch where you itch. Um, and also, if you'd like to be kept, like us to keep in contact with you to let us know when we're going to start next term, put your name and, and email address on, on, on the sheet, and then we can contact you to say what date we're actually going to kick off again. We don't have a, a set start date yet. And so, fill that in while you're sleeping through the No, while you're listening very <laughs> So, we got, on a Christmas theme today, the last one of term, um, mince pies. Peter, first of all, <laughs> the Advent service this morning. Yeah. Um, Peter, first of all, on the Nativity, and then Erica on the start of Bethlehem. So there will be a bit of overlap between our talks, but we haven't collaborated, so it'll be interested to see whether the overlaps uh, agree or disagree, won't it? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to basically do a a troll through the uh, nativity stories from the Gospels uh, and looking for uh, indicators of historicity uh, in those stories. Um, There's basically two approaches you can take to trusting uh, a testimony. Um, You could trust the story because you've got general reasons for trusting the source of that testimony, or, or, and or, uh, because you've got specific reasons for trusting uh, that story, uh, usually in some sort of argument by way of where I can check the story out, it proves reliable, that ups uh, the rationality of thinking that even in those parts of the story that I can't directly check out, it's probably reliable because it was reliable where I could check it. Um, i.e., that is, you could think that the story passes various sort of standard critical historical criteria, such as being reported by independent witnesses, such as Matthew and Luke, uh, unfalsified claiming of public knowledge when people tell a story and they claim that something happened publicly and that doesn't get falsified, that's a good mark in its favour, being potentially embarrassing to those who tell the story, it's called the criteria of embarrassment, People don't tend to tend to tell stories that put themselves in a bad light if they can avoid it. Um, having elements of that story that are, say, verified by um, archaeology, for example, or uh, exhibiting coherence with other uh, ancient sources uh, that you think are trustworthy. And some combination of these, uh, I think, can be applied as we go through the nativity stories. And here's uh, this week's pop at Dawkins. Um, historian, <laughs> you've got used to this by now, haven't you? Historian John Dixon, <laughs> I know, <laughs> notes that in the God delusion, uh, Dawkins puts the story of the Magi worshipping the infant Jesus in the wrong gospel. It seems to be more than a typographical error on his part, uh, because his argument at this point is that Matthew invented stories that would appeal to Jews. Uh, descent from King David, birth in Bethlehem, etc. Whereas, and quote, quote, Luke's desire was to adapt Christianity for Gentiles and hence to press the familiar hot buttons of pagan Hellenistic religions. Virgin birth, worship by kings, either Magi, etc. God Delusion, page 94. Uh, that's from the paperback edition. However, the Magi story is, of course, found in Matthew chapter 2. Um, so, rather derailing uh, the argument that Dawkins is trying to make there. 
Talking of independent witnesses, Matthew, of course, connected to the, the Jewish disciple, Matthew the tax collector, at least, even if he's not the final editor of the whole thing, as we were talking about the other week, uh, I reckon completed by about AD 60. Luke, written by the Greek doctor and sometime travelling companion of Paul the Apostle, uh, completed again around about sometime by AD 60. Um, little uh, nice ancient Roman Christian sarcophagus from the 4th century here with Jesus in the, in the crib. Um, Professor Keith Ward makes this point. He says that Matthew seems to have derived his account from Joseph, ultimately, and Luke from Mary, when you read the stories side by side. So Matthew tells about an angel appearing to Joseph, the wise men visiting the house in Bethlehem, and the flight to Egypt. Luke does not mention any of these things. Instead, he speaks of the angelic visitation to Mary, the birth of John the Baptist to, uh, to Elizabeth, uh, the visit of the shepherds, and the presentation at the temple. What this suggests is there were two independent sources of the virgin birth stories, uh, and that increases the probability that they're founded on historical recollections, at least. There's no collaboration between the two stories to get the, to get the, you know, the stories kind of lined up as if sort of the witnesses have collaborated before you've got them into the, into the witness stand. Paul Barnett uh, does an interesting comparison between uh, Galatians 4.4 from uh, Paul's letter of Galatians, uh, which we know is written about AD 49, and the story uh, in Luke. And he says, that in the light of the similarity of concepts between uh, the stories, although not exact wording, he thinks it's probable that Paul knew at least the underlying tradition about Jesus' birth that would then find more complete form in the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And of course, Gospel of Luke by Luke, Paul's travelling companion, that all kind of seems to fit in. So there's some interesting uh, signs of, of parallelism uh, between the way those stories are recounted. Uh, Galatians 4.4, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, etc. Uh, and various parallels with the way that Luke talks about the story as well. Ignatius, uh, in his letters before his martyrdom, writing to the Ephesian Christians circa AD 108, so not that uh, long after the first century, uh, he writes about, For God, Jesus Christ, was conceived by Mary in God's plan being sprung both from the seed of David and for the Holy Spirit, Mary's virginity and her giving birth, etc., etc. So we could add that source in. It's not too late a source. Unfalsified claiming of public knowledge. Claiming public knowledge of an event is a risky strategy if the event didn't happen in public. Um, Zachariah's loss and regaining of speech, for example, in the story is witnessed by um, people at the temple, Elizabeth, Mary, neighbours and relatives, such that we're told that throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. Um, it's an odd way to go about just making up a story. It's a rather risky strategy. Um, Elizabeth's pregnancy is said to be witnessed by Elizabeth, Mary, neighbours and relatives such that throughout the hill country, etc. Um, angels, Jesus in the manger, witnessed by a group of shepherds who are also an embarrassing witness of low social status to include. Coming to the Magi, witnessed by Herod's court and all Jerusalem, as well as Mary and Joseph and those there. Um, so there are a number of incidents that are claimed as uh, incidents of, of widespread public knowledge 
And that's a bad way to make up a story if you want to get it accepted, particularly since we know it was told in the same area uh, within the lifetime of the supposed eyewitnesses. On the criteria of embarrassment, N.T. Wright writes that there is no pre-Christian Jewish tradition suggesting that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. No one used Isaiah 7.14 this way before Matthew did, even assuming that Matthew or Luke regularly invented material to fit Jesus into earlier templates from the Old Testament. Why would they have invented something like this? The only conceivable parallels are pagan ones, um, as Dawkins was talking about. And these fiercely Jewish stories have certainly not been modelled on them. Luke, at least, must have known that telling this story ran the risk of making Jesus out to be a pagan demigod. Why, for the sake of some exalted metaphor, would they run that risk? Unless they at least believed the stories were literally true. As another commentator puts it, a devout Jew, Matthew's decision to record that Joseph, who represented the royal bloodline from David, of course, was not Jesus' natural father, only his legal father, could open up a potential flood of compromising criticisms that Jesus was born out of wedlock. Um, And he reckons that that is a good point in Matthew's favour, that he nonetheless uh, puts that in there. There are lots of little indications that you can pick up that there was something scandalous about the birth of Jesus. Um, Working our way back in time, you can look at the Acts of Pilate in the mid-fourth century, um, has the, the Jews charging that Jesus was born of fornication. In 178 AD, the pagan writer Celsus wrote a long polemic against Christianity in which he portrays Jesus as the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier and Mary. In John 8.14, we have the the comment uh, from uh, Jewish establishment figures, uh, we were not born illegitimate, the only father we have is God, i.e. indicating you're illegitimate. John Redford, in his book Born of a Virgin, points out that at one time it was a very popular idea that this, this Christian idea of the virgin birth did arise because of pagan religions themselves had notions of God mating, God's mating with humans uh, and producing demigods, you know, half-divine, half-human beings. Um, but all attempts to demonstrate a, a dependence on such legends by the early Christian community have failed to produce any evidence for it. Rather than being an idea borrowed from other traditions... A birth from a virgin woman by the power of God alone uh, is unique uh, to the Christian sources. So dipping our toe into the beginning of the story, we of course have the figure of Caesar Augustus and his dates there. Luke, in the days of Caesar Augustus, this is when this all happened. Uh, Starting in Nazareth, of course, up until 2010, we didn't have all that much archaeology related to, to Nazareth. We had some, I think, olive presses and some graves that, that said there must have been a town there. But in 2010, they dug up some first century houses. According to the extra excavation director here, the discoveries are of the utmost importance because it reveals, for the first time, a house from the Jewish village of Nazareth and thereby sheds light on the way of life at the time of Jesus. Also, there's sometimes been controversy over whether Bethlehem existed at the time of the Gospel stories. We know it existed later, but did it exist at the time? Did it exist earlier uh, and through? And in May 2012, very recent discovery, um, this is a very large projection of a very small 
bula or stamp that you would use to sort of stamp trade goods with. Uh, Eli Sukron here, uh, Israeli archaeologists, find seal that mentions Bethlehem. Um, here we can read the word Bethlehem in a clear Hebrew inscription from the first temple period, that's the 8th to the 7th century BC, on a bula found in Israel that arrived from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, maybe to pay some tax. This is the Bethlehem next to Jerusalem referred to in the Bible. Uh, so proof that it did pre-exist the time of Jesus and not just come from afterwards. Uh, the Church of the Nativity, Gospel accounts, don't mention a cave. And the Church of the Nativity is built over a cave that is said to be the traditional birthplace of Jesus. But less than a century later, just in Martyr in 160 AD, and the proto-evangelism of James both say that Jesus was born in a cave. We don't often think that's not the way it's usually portrayed on the Christmas cards or the TV, is it? No, Jesus born in a cave. This tradition is also attested by Oregon and Eusebius in the 3rd century. And actually, when you look at the archaeology of houses in the area, many houses in that area are still built in front of caves. Because you've already got that there, use it as the storage area, put the animals there at night... Bada bing, bada boom. Um, the cave part was <laughs> stabling and storage, and then you built your house in front of it, and you had the guest room on top of the, the flat roof, and then you had the guest room upstairs. Now, Jerome and Paulus of Nolo indicate that the site was marked about the time of Hadrian, about 120 AD, so there's a fair chance that this actually, actually does uh, mark the right site. Um, again, here's a depiction of a typical first century Jewish home, with the guest quarters upstairs and the daytime living quarters downstairs and in this area you built it in front of a cave and you put the animals uh, in the cave at night. And here's a first century uh, manger <laughs> that's what we're looking at. Roger Highfield uh, notes that Ken Bailey, who's a specialist in the, in the traditions of the area, argues that the word that we translate as inn in the story, you know, no room at the inn, uh, mis is a mistranslation of the word there, which is cataluma, which actually has several meanings, and Bailey argues that Cataluma should be translated as guest room. Um, drawing on cultural and archaeological evidence, he supports the contention that Jesus was born in the heart of a Palestinian home. He says Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem. Uh, Joseph finds shelter with a family. Uh, the family's got separate guest room, but it's full because of the taxation. The couple's accommodated among the family in acceptable village style, the birth takes place there on the raised terrace of the family home uh, and the baby's laid in the manger. Um, so it's not some sort of, there's no room at the inn, go out around the stables, around the back kind of thing. Um, it does uh, fit, though, the culture or context that we can work out from the ground. There's an interesting comment, side comment from Daniel Wallace, who notices that these sheep around Bethlehem, they think of the story of the shepherds now, the sheep around Bethlehem uh, were sacrificial lambs for the temple system. In the early spring, they would have been slaughtered at the Passover. And it's interesting to think that God first revealed the Messiah's birth to these shepherds, shepherds who protected harmless lambs, which would soon die on the behalf of sinful men. And I think there's a, a resonance there, uh, something actually being said uh, by that event, rather than it just being a bit sort of random. Roger Highfield notes that from the 4th century BC, Babylon was the centre of astronomy in the known world. Magi were important members of the Babylonian court in Mesopotamia. 
Uh, and Babylon had contained a thriving Jewish colony since the time of the exile, a Jewish exile in the 13th century, um, so that Jewish prophecies of a, of a Messiah, Saviour, King, etc., may well have been known to Magi through this Babylonian exile connection. Uh, in the Hellenistic age, some of those Magi left Babylon for places such as Persia, Mesopotamia, and Arabia. And when you look at the history of the struggles between Rome and Persia, Palestine is essentially a buffer state uh, between these two powers. Um, Herod was granted the title King of the Jews three years before he was actually able to occupy his own capital city, um, having been previously driven out by the Persians. Uh, So the Jews looked down on Herod, and the potential existed for Herod to be attacked uh, from a lot of different directions. He felt himself in a rather precarious position. Um, given the fact that Magi were given great power in Persia and often played key roles in government affairs such as the selecting of kings you can see why Herod would have been worried about things uh, when they turn up on his doorstep Daniel Wallace again ties in about the, the, the presence and the prophecies that they may have known through this Babylonian connection why gold, frankincense and myrrh Gold is perhaps the easiest to, to understand, but frankincense and ur are rather decidedly odd uh, baby shower presents to give. Um, perhaps they had read Isaiah's prophecy about the nations coming, uh, uh, bringing gold and frankincense and bearing good news in Isaiah 60. Um, or myrrh, which was used to embalm corpses. Um, perhaps the Magi were thinking of Jesus' death when they brought the myrrh, because they knew of it from Daniel's prophecy, Daniel 9, 24, 27, where the Messiah will be cut off and will make atonement for iniquity and bring everlasting righteousness. So there's this prophecy of Messiah uh, atoning death and so on that maybe they knew and that explains the, the gifts. So that kind of ties in with other sources. Herod the Great's mentioned in plenty of archaeology, of course. There's a little amphora here with Herod the Great, King of the Jews on it and a coin of Herod the Great. Uh, from year three of his reign. Josephus tells us quite a lot about Herod, nasty character, mm-hmm. inflicted such outrages upon the Jews that not even a beast could have done it if possessed by the power to rule over men, says Josephus. Um, he murdered his favourite wife's father, drowned her brother and killed her, executed one of his most trusted friends and uh, 300 military leaders on one occasion. Uh, he also th- uh, slew three of his sons, suspecting them of treason. And before he died, knowing that he was dying, he locked up 3,000 of the nation's leading citizens and gave orders that they were to be executed at the hour of his, de- of his death. You know, he wanted people to be sad when he died. <laughs> Maybe he had a bit of an inkling that they wouldn't be sad if he just died. Um, fortunately, no one carried through the orders because they worked out, hang on, Herod's dead. He can't do anything to us if we don't carry out the order. Um, But ordering the murder of 10 to 60 babies in a small uh, provincial community um, wouldn't have been out of character. Um, Maybe Josephus didn't know about that relatively insignificant crime, or he knew about it but decided he didn't merit a specific mention, because it's not about important people. Um, You know, not everything gets mentioned, but it certainly ties in with the character and actions of Josephus, as we, uh, that Josephus uh, tells us about of Herod. And, uh, Here's Elegnutzer standing in front of uh, where he found Herod's tomb uh, in 2007 and a bit of Herod's sarcophagus from there. So dating, this will tie in more to to Erica's uh, speech, I think, but the Gospels 
tell us that Jesus' birth was shortly before Herod the Great died. Josephus records an eclipse of the moon just before Herod passed on, and that allows us to work out that uh, Herod passed, this eclipse was on March the 12th or 13th in 4 BC. Um, and Josephus also tells us that it was just before Passover, and that feast took place on April 11th in the same year, 4 BC. From other details supplied by Josephus, we can pinpoint Herod the Great's demise uh, between March 29th and April 4th, 4 BC. Matthew tells us that Herod uh, killed Bethlehem's babies two years old and under. So the earliest Jesus could have been born was 6 BC. And we can be relatively confident that Jesus was born in either late 5, early 4 BC at the, at the most recent, as it were. Um, but we'll see how that ties in with astrological uh, stuff from uh, Erica's talk. <laughs> Right. Depending, the, the whole census issue. This is the because I said I was going to I was going to talk about the positive signs. So here's the two slides I have on the census. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> we're told that um, Caesar Augustus issues this command, and then of course it goes on to say that all the world should be registered in our NIVs. It says the entire Roman world. Um, of course, Caesar Augustus never did order that all the world or the entire Roman world should be registered. That's quite true. Um, what the verse actually says, though, is that the whole, the whole oikonon, the whole land, was to be registered. A term that, for example, in Acts 11.28 is used, that there would be a great famine over the whole oikonon, where it clearly means just the land of Judea. Uh, it can mean a region uh, rather than the whole world or the empire or whatever. Um, we do know that nearing the end of his reign, Herod fell out of favour with Caesar Augustus, who sent him a sharply worded letter saying that whereas before he'd treated him as a friend, from now on he'd uh, treat him as, as a subject, Josephus tells us about this. Uh, Herod was demoted from Rex Socius to Rex Amicus, and so lost the authority to conduct his own taxation in that move. From Los Josephus, we learn that at this time the Romans required an oath of allegiance an oath of allegiance to Caesar uh, from the citizens of Herod's domain, uh, Antiquities 17.24. Now, that would be a step in the reduction of Palestine from a kingdom to the status of a Roman province. But within a year or so, Josephus reports, Herod managed to claw his way back into Augustus's good graces. Now, Luke writes, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, but Quirinius didn't become governor of Syria until... 6 AD, 10 years after Herod the Great was dead. However, Luke knows Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great, and he knows about the taxation under Quirinius. It's mentioned in Acts 5.37. Um, the Greek word for first, prote, can be translated as prior to or before. Hence, the Greek text of Luke 2.2 could be translated, this census was before Quirinius was governing Syria. That's one possibility. Uh, another possibility, um, you can translate an, another bit, depending on whether it's, you translated it as capitals or lowercase, and it was all capitals, uh, it could be the taxation itself was first made, 
um, because the term's ambiguous here. It can mean a registration or a taxation involving a registration. Um, so it, another admissible reading of Luke's Greek would be that Quirinius picked up where the matter was dropped in 6 BC and brought the taxation to pass on the basis of the registration that came from the Oath of Allegiance. Um, Luke uses this uh, same word in the same way in um, Acts 11. So, uh, Luke's reference to the registration corresponds perhaps to Josephus' allusion in Antiquities to an oath of allegiance to Caesar in Judea near the end of the reign of Herod the Great when he'd fallen out of favour temporarily before he got in and then Quirinius later brought to pass a taxation on the basis of that. Maybe. That's... That's not the only method that's used today when the census happened, though. Because the census... It's obviously important to own records, and there are Roman records showing that the census was. You can't really sort of model that data alone too much. No, it's it's the well, it's the. I think the records are about the taxation um, in six. Yeah, the taxation under Crinius in in AD six. The census is the mechanism that gets Jesus and Mary to from. Uh, yes, that's, that, that's right. But what, the, one of the readings here is that that, that, that that census is the oath of allegiance that's being talked about in Josephus. Mm-hmm. And that then what Luke says is that the taxation that Quirinius does um, was the, um, the outplaying of the, getting the taxation on the basis of the registration. Or you could read Luke as saying this was the taxation that happened before the one. Which then begs, or which then sort of raises the question with, if there was no, um, why, why would you then put Mary on a donkey and take her 18 miles and not make roads when she's nine months pregnant to get between the two places? Yeah. Unless, I think, the sensible answer to this is that Jesus wasn't born, Bethlehem was born in Nazareth. Okay, you, you might think that, but I, you know, I know plenty of people who've gone on long journeys with pregnant wives. Um. <laughs> yeah, I understand that there are two kinds of censuses as well. It's what you're referring mm. to. Is that there's the all people census, that maybe this was one of them, maybe there was one in, in BC as well. Um, but actually, the census, but that was for Roman citizens, that was for taxation, like you say, mm. whereas the there were other censuses which weren't actually recorded quite the same way, but were for all people in terms of, like you say, of mm. allegiance, um, possibly military training, and, and, and therefore those may, that may have occurred and may not be actually even cited in the court. Yeah. Yeah. And those are more Jesus is always referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, mm. whereas the possibility of getting him, so we, we, I think to say that he was born in Nazareth is, is using the other mm. aspects of uh, biblical historicity, whereas to say that, I think, I don't know, what would you, you would say if you were asked to translate your miles on donkey um, when you were nine months pregnant? It, it doesn't seem, that doesn't seem particularly. Uh, we don't know how many months. Impressive regimes show again and again mm. the people mm. will trek for night and day if they're all the two of them. Mm. Uh, 
an army telling them where to go and what to do. We don't know if she was nine months either. I mean, it could have been six months and, you know, well, story. It appears that she, you know, delivered on life, but it might have been, you know, it might have been several weeks later. I wept mm. as Anybody else with a question? I just wanted to wonder about um, the number of babies that you said were mm. killed, were killed by heroin. I've had always thought that it was a lot more than that. So mm. have, I've, have I misunderstood heroin's scope here? Yeah, it's you. You see a range of numbers. I kind of gave the sort of inner and outer range of numbers that people calculate. Because you're looking at the at the size of community that Bethlehem would have been, and you're trying to estimate well how how many babies in a community of that size of two years and and younger. So it, was, it, it wasn't all of Herod's um, realm, if you like. It was just. No, no, that's 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 right. Because the oh, okay. he, the major I'd been there and said, we're you know, oh, okay. where is this guy to be born? Yes. And the the wise men come and say, oh, you know, according to prophecy, it's in in Bethlehem. He says, go to Bethlehem, identify, and come back to me so that I can worship him as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. And then when they then, then they don't come back, and so Herod's move is well, I, I'll, since I don't know which baby it is, I'll wipe them all out. But it's only all in Bethlehem. Oh. It's not like he Still killed, it, yeah. Okay. You know, well, he killed everyone two years and under in the whole of, of Palestine. Kind of, yeah. He wanted a simple rule to give to the soldiers to do it. Yeah. He didn't want them mucking it up. That's right. So, but if they kill them all under the two, that's... That's definitely going to get him, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs>